Good morning. Like Jason said, go ahead and open up to Colossians. It's right after Philippians. And we're in verses 1 and 2, chapter 1 this morning, starting it off. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and pe- grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're not awake, you are now, okay? We are ready to go and we are excited about um, this series today as we start a new book of the Bible. It's primarily what we do here at Westside, just sort of teach through God's Word, line by line and word by word. And I've had the privilege of preaching through about a half dozen books here at Westside, and I'm so excited to start Colossians today. I'm almost ready to burst up here today, okay, all right? Um, But as I was just sort of praying and looking towards the new year and 2021 and how we would get started in this, um, read through Colossians in our Bible reading plan, and as I was just praying, I just couldn't shake Colossians, and so um, just kept reading through it and reading through it and reading through it, and really the question was asking the Lord, man, this new year and in light of everything that's taken place, what do we need? What do you have for us as your people And I really believe that it is found in the book of Colossians. And and, and maybe this will help sort of set us up and and introduce this book to you. Maybe you're unfamiliar with the Bible. Maybe you're you're not even a Christian. We're we're very glad that you're here. We hope that you will become one. That's kind of my aim, okay, right? Just full cards on the table. I am selling something, and it's Jesus, okay, right? But listen, the reason why that we want to do this is because we really believe um, that God wrote a book, And we believe that everything that we need to know, that God has revealed that in his written word. And so in this New Testament letter, I want to sort of set us up this direction. I uh, ran across um, a topic when I was reading and studying, and it's called the overview effect. And what the overview effect is, is when astronauts go into space, they see this image, the earth there in orbit. And the overview effect is something that kept coming up and coming up time and time again whenever the astronauts would be reviewed whenever they came back to earth. So when they would come back to earth, they go through sort of a post interview asking them about their experience. And they would always try to describe something, but words would always fail them. And then finally, after so many astronauts kept coming back sort of describing, whenever we were there in orbit and we saw the earth um, in its complete form and we were far away, there was something that changed. There was something that took effect in my mind. And so finally, um, they coined the phrase, the overview effect. And what the overview effect is, is this. It is a cognitive shift in awareness reported by some astronauts during spaceflight, often while viewing the Earth from outer space. And here's what they would all say. When I was out there in space and I saw the Earth just hanging there, I realized how small I was, and I began to wrestle with these questions in life, like, what's my purpose? How did this get there? And seeing that big image literally changed 
my life. And, and what's, so inter, what's so interesting about it is astronauts, I don't know if you've ever seen an astronaut interviewed, but they're not the most emotional people, okay? They're what we call left-brainers, right? So they're all about numbers, and they don't know how to express emotion, but they would all show this sense and sign of emotion when describing seeing this massive picture of the earth. And so it got one doctor, Frank White, to write a book called The Overview Effect. And in it, he says this. There were a number of astronauts, 29 of them, who shared this same experience. And uh, Charlie Duke was a lunar module pilot for Apollo 16. He became a Christian after seeing the Earth from space. Jim Irwin of Apollo 15 became a preacher. Edgar Mitchell from the Noetic Institute research altered states of consciousness and began to give his life to this research. And Apollo 9 astronaut Russell began transcendental meditation and dedicated his life to voluntary work. Listen, something happened to them. Something changed in them when they got in space and saw a clear picture of the earth. And I would submit to you today that that's the book of Colossians. That what the book of Colossians does is it zooms out from almost a 30,000 foot view and shows us a massive image of the God-man Jesus Christ. And that Paul's aim, the writer of Colossians, is to show how big, how massive, and how supreme this Jesus is. And in turn, when you see that clear image, it literally changes your life. J.B. Lightfoot, a New Testament scholar, put it this way. The doctrine of the person of Christ is here stated in the book of Colossians with greater precision and fullness than in any other of St. Paul's epistles. That is a big statement to say. That out of all of Paul's writings in the New Testament, that there's no other book in the New Testament that shows Jesus Christ so clearly and so supremely. And so what is our big idea today to introduce us into this new book of the Bible? It's this, that a clear view of Jesus Christ will change your life. That a clear view of Jesus will change your life. And whenever I was asking the Lord, God, what would you have for us in this new year? God, in light of everything that's taken place, I just felt dropped, sort of God just slid into my DMs and said, listen, Jason, what my people need, what my people need is a clear view of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. It's almost like whenever you go to sort of reorganize maybe that junk drawer in your house, you've got that drawer, right, where there's all those batteries in there that you have to go through three or four to find out, wait, which are the good ones, which aren't the good ones. I mean, there's candy in that thing. There's all types of stuff in that junk drawer. And what you do to organize it is you just dump it all out. You just start from scratch and dump it all out and then start placing things in. Listen, I think right now in 2021, we need a restart button. We need to dump everything out and we need to start with Jesus Christ at the center. 
So listen, this is the goal. I don't even know how long we're going to be in this series. Babies might be born and graduate high school. I don't know, okay, right? But here's what I'm asking the Lord. I'm just asking the Lord to show us a clear view of Jesus Christ. Because listen, Christians, this Jesus that you fell in love with, this Jesus that found you in the depths and the broken places in your life, you still need a clear view of that Jesus. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then maybe non-Christians and those sort of peeking over the fence. Maybe you've been hurt by church and maybe you're so confused and you're like all these other religions. And, but I was told this growing up and this, listen, this is the perfect series for you because we're dumping it all out and we're starting with a clear image of Jesus Christ. So today, what I always do in a series is, is we've got to introduce this book. Okay, we've got to know the background. We've got to learn some things today. So the first part's going to be sort of like a Bible study. It's going to be a little teachy, but don't worry. I'll get to yelling and get to preaching and everything like that. But we've got to understand this book and what we have in our hands. And so that's called the context, okay? So if you're studying the Bible, it's not just some magic eight ball. You don't just open up the pages. You've got to know what you have here. And the context is this. The author is the Apostle Paul. He says that in chapter 1, verse 1. There was some uh, critical stuff that's popped up in probably the last 20 or 30 years that was criticizing that Paul didn't actually write the letter, but there's substantial evidence, and scholars would agree that this is absolutely a Pauline epistle. What's significant about this is the Apostle Paul was Saul before he met Jesus, and he went from literally persecuting the church and hating Christians to getting a clear view of Jesus Christ, his life changed, and then he goes to plant churches, and now he's writing a letter to a church, which tells me um, that a clear view of Jesus Christ can change your life. Amen? So the author's the Apostle Paul. The date is anywhere from around 60 to 62 A.D., and we'll learn a little bit more about the context and why that timeline's important. Where did Paul write this from? Paul wrote this um, from his first imprisonment when he was in Rome. So the Apostle Paul loved uh, to get arrested quite a lot, actually, because he would go around preaching that Jesus Christ was Lord and Caesar was not. And when you have a tyrant as an emperor, they don't really like that. And so the Apostle Paul was always thrown in jail. And the letter tells us, that a young man by the name of Epaphras traveled to Rome while Paul was in jail to tell him about what was going on in Colossians. So actually, in, in Acts chapter 19, we see the Apostle Paul preaching in Ephesus. And he's preaching there, and he devotes three years of his life in Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus, Ephesians, that book of the Bible, began there. But what we know is that Epaphras was there at that time. And Epaphras gives his life over to the Lord, travels back to his hometown of Colossae, and starts a church, which tells me this, that a clear view of Jesus Christ will change your life. That everybody that keeps encountering this Jesus and seeing him for who he is changes their direction, changes their life. And the church of Colossae is birthed. And the reason why Epaphras comes to Paul that we'll find out next week about this, is there started to be some heresy, and, and, and that's just a churchy term, okay, Bible nerds like that, they like to throw it around all the time on Facebook, heresy, okay, and all that stuff. Listen, all it means is um, an improper teaching, 
That's what it means. And an improper teaching crept into the church of Colossae. And they started teaching things like, um, well, it's not just Jesus, but you also have to um, have this, and you also have to do this, and oh yeah, you can't celebrate Christmas and Halloween, and what you also need to do is, not really Halloween, okay, but what they were saying was, you had to do all these other things and then add Jesus to it. And the Apostle Paul, you want to get the Apostle Paul fired up? You tell him that you add something to Jesus Christ, and he's like, give me a pen, give me a pen, I'm ready to write this letter right now. And so Epaphras comes to him and it's like, I need help with this error that's creeping into the church. And listen, I believe, as we're going to find out next week, that that's just as relevant today. That we think that these old heresies and things like Gnosticism, which we'll learn about, those are old heresies, those are old things. We don't need to worry about that. But anytime we run a connection class and I have people ask questions, it's always... Well, um, don't you have to speak in tongues in order to go to heaven? Um, don't you have to do this too? Or um, what, do you what do you believe about them Democrats? What do you and them Republicans? Like, listen, constantly the church of Jesus Christ over 2,000 years has to fight adding things to Jesus. And so what this is going to do is give us a clear image of Jesus Christ. And what this is known as is Paul's prison epistles, okay? So Paul wrote Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Colossians while he was in prison. And we actually preached through the book of Philemon um, about a year and a half, two years ago. And that book talks about a specific issue that's taking place in the church of Colossae. So that's where it's written from. It's written to, I'll give you a wild guess, to Christians living in Colossae, right? Okay? And this is what, um, a little bit of a map. Some of you guys are fired up. You're like, when are we ever going to use the maps in our Bible? Here you go, right here. Here's your moment, okay? Right? So this is what all of this um, modern-day Turkey would have looked like in Paul's day. You have Ephesus located here. You have Thessalonica, Philippi. Um, you have the church there in Corinth. But what was so significant about Colossae is that it was located along the Lycus River. So you've got to understand something. Back then, roads were not that common. Um, actually, the Roman government is um, ascribed to being the one that changed the world. But that's why all roads lead to Rome. They developed a road system that led back to Rome. So if there wasn't roads, you had to be along a water route in order for trade and for commerce. And the Lycus Valley was immense with trade, commerce, education. It's where the culture was happening. But here's what's interesting. The Apostle Paul never went to the church at Colossae. He never visited them. He never saw them face to face. But yet... He spoke to that church as an outside authority, which tells me this. What we see in the New Testament is, listen, a proper structure, an authority structure that we see for churches. It's not just like some guess, um, hey, we're just going to do this and this, that, and the other. We see that there's God has ordained and ordered that churches should be structured a certain way. And one of the things that we see is that there should be outside wise counsels speak in to the life of local churches. And, and listen, just so you know this, that's something that we're working on here at Westside. We want to be a biblical church. 
We want to be a church that's structured like God has designed it in the scriptures. And so we see that there was a structure taking place, but here's what's interesting. Colossae was overshadowed. It was overshadowed by Ephesus to the north, and then um, Thyatira and some of these other churches that we see in Revelation were to the south. And when I was studying it, I thought, that's perfect for us. Everybody's always like, when I was in student ministry here in Popper Bluff, the students would always be like, well, I'm, I'm going to college, and I'm out of here, man. Popper Bluff, man, there ain't nothing around here, man. Nothing ever happens in Bluff. I'm out of here, right? Then they get the real world, get out of college, and they're like, well, i got to start my life, so I should probably move back in with my mom and dad, okay, right? And then everybody always thinks we got to get to where the city is and where the culture and this, that, and the other, and St. Louis to the north and... Jonesboro to the south. and Listen, when I was studying that, I really thought, man, Colossae and Popper Bluff have a lot in common. It was a rural environment. It was overshadowed by bigger cities to the north and to the south. But listen, God, God loves a rural town. Listen, Jesus Christ gave his life of his three years of ministry and traveled no more than a hundred mile radius from the town that he was born in. Jesus gave his life to the rural environment where, quote-unquote, the ordinary happens. Listen, God loves doing extraordinary things in ordinary places and ordinary ways. This is what Colossae was, and God's going to use that for us here at Westside and Popper Bluff. And this is what Colossae would have sort of looked like in the days of Paul when Epaphras got the letter. Um, it was a little bit affluent, but it had a lot of these mountains and sort of valleys and things like that. Again, it was overshadowed by all of these other bigger cities. And if you um, take a trip today and tour Paul's missionary journeys, uh, which you actually can do, and you can also sponsor your pastor to go at any moment, so you can go out there in the lobby today. No, no, no. Um, but actually, if you go there, um, this is what Colossae looks like today. Nothing, right? Literally nothing. And the reason why is because somewhere around 62 to 63 A.D., a devastating earthquake came and literally leveled the city. It was later on sort of rebuilt by the Persian Empire, but there is a ton of excavation that's still to be done. And just to let you know, um, the Bible is not some mythical book. That's why we teach through books of the Bible here. This, this letter was written by a real person to real people living at a real time in real space. And a picture that you're seeing is an excavation site of one of the theaters there at Colossae. And in recent uh, couple decades, they are constantly finding evidence that there was a church or a large gathering of people that met in Colossae. And listen, I just say this to tell you this, that you can trust your Bible. That you can trust your Bible. That, that all time proves is the accuracy and the truth of the Scriptures. That, that's what we see. So that's what Colossae looked like in the time that Paul wrote to it. But, but what in the context is, is the theme of the letter? Well, it's four chapters, 96 total verses. The word Christ in the original is used 24 times. And then Paul's favorite word, Paul's favorite word in the letter is the word all. All. He uses it all the time. All the time. 
That's a joke. Okay. All right. Um, which, which tells me this, um, that the theme of Colossians is it's all about Jesus. That it's all about Jesus. Paul starts from creation and says that Jesus Christ is the one who created the world, that he starts with creation, that he starts with um, marriage, that he starts with the home, that he starts with your work. We're going to talk about how your work even, how does Jesus play into that? Prayer life, suffering, all of this, you name it. At the end of the day, Jesus Christ has a direct impact on everything in our lives, that it is all about Jesus And listen, what we need with all the distractions and all the chaos and all the confusion and all the lies and all the division and all the anger and hostility, listen, what we need is we need Jesus. We need a clear view of this Jesus. And so the theme of Colossians is it's all about Jesus. And so listen, I want to ask a couple questions today that are going to introduce us to the book. It's going to be sort of a 30,000-foot overview of why we're studying this and what the purpose of it is. So the first question is this. What is the goal of this series, right? Um, anytime that I ever go out to eat, I always know if my experience is going to be good or bad when I ask the waiter or waitress, hey, um, what's the special? What are the specials today? The soup du jour, it sounds good, I'll have that. No, that's a, sorry, it's a dumb and dumber quote. But um, anytime they say, oh, I don't know, let me go ask, I'm always concerned, okay? I'm always concerned because they're supposed to let me know where I'm going, what's here, sort of serving and taking care. And listen, today what I want us to do is I want us to look at what's the goal of this series, where are we going, right? And the Apostle Paul actually tells us, Colossians chapter 1, him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. The Apostle Paul says, listen, this is his philosophy of ministry. He says, you know the reason why I teach, the reason why I'm suffering, the reason why I'm in jail, um, how I do this is, is I warn, right? And, there's, and listen, just a heads up, there's going to be some messages of warning that we're going to have to deal with because my job is, is not to mess with the mail, my job's to deliver it, okay? And sometimes uh, we need a message of warning, but also teaching everyone that we might present them mature. Some of your Bible translations might say perfect. That's, that's the purpose of this. Here, here's what I'm trying to say. The goal of this series is for people to meet Jesus and to mature in Jesus. And listen, I think there's a ditch on either side of the road. And oftentimes... Christians say, well, man, you know, we're very evangelistic. People need to meet Jesus. We need to meet Jesus. We need to meet Jesus. We need to meet Jesus. I heard one pastor say one time, the moment that you met Jesus, this church is no longer for you or about you. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's, that's kind of true, right? And then there's other Christians that are like, well, it's all about maturity, man. What we need to do is we need to study all of the, all of the names of God in the original Hebrew, brother. Because we need to know about and know about and know about. And those guys are keyboard warriors who aren't involved in a local church and don't serve at all, okay? 
It's both and. We need people to meet Jesus, but the moment that you meet Jesus, you begin the lifelong process of maturing in Jesus, which is discipleship. And so listen, I'm praying that in this series that we would see real fruit in our lives here at Westside. That some of you would meet Jesus for the first time, that you would get a clear view and change your life. And then for some of you who maybe been wrestling with sin or temptation or dealing with certain things or not involved or serving here at the church, that it would be now a journey of maturing in Jesus. But, but the question always comes down to, what, what does maturity look like? How do we, as Christians, measure maturity? I think that's an important question for us to ask. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be able to look at your life and measure the maturity and the progress in your relationship with Jesus. Um, my in-laws and the kids' grandparents had this little space there in the garage where all of the grandkids, and we're, you know, between all the kids, it's like we're trying to start a new city or something like that. Um, all the grandkids, they keep track of, of them growing with their marks. And so um, Piper Graham was this tall back in 2019, and then Roman loves being up at the top of the list. And it's cool that every time that we walk by it, that we can see the progress that's been made for the kids growing. How do we do that for our lives? Like, what does it mean to be a disciple? Am I, like, do I just come here on Sunday and then, like, what, how do I measure maturity? Well, I think it's important to know what spiritual maturity is not first in order to then look at what it is. Um, first off, spiritual maturity is not measured by age. Okay, that was one of the things that I was the most blown away by when I became a youth pastor in an established church up in St. Louis. And I had these people introduce, you know, um, I was born, I had one lady say, I was almost literally born in this church that my mother began having contractions and her water broke on a Sunday morning here. Like, like this has been my church, like my whole life, I was almost born here in the church. And then just through years realized, Never read through the Bible? Never shared Christ with somebody? Like, like, I was blown away at that just because I grew up and thought, oh, like, if you're old, you're mature in Christ, right? That just kind of sort of happens that way. And, and the answer is no, it's, it's not measured by age. Or, or how about this? Um, spiritual maturity is not measured by appearance at all. At all. I mean, the scripture teaches us over and over and over again that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the intentions of the heart. And man, in, in Popper Bluff and in Butler County, when you need to have it all together and have the two kids and the golden Labrador retriever and then the truck with the boat because you do the weekends at the river and then you have, and everything's all nice and it looks all perfect and great. Hey, hey, listen, can, can I just let you in? Everybody's life's a mess everybody's life's a mess. And the person who's like, my life isn't a mess, their life is, is, is the worst most of the time, right? It's not measured by appearance, by looking like you have it all figured out. And then the last thing is this, it is not measured by achievements. And this is probably the scariest thing. It's probably the scariest thing. That when we look at some people 
And we say, oh, wow, look at what all they've quote unquote done. The Apostle Paul would go on to say of somebody who was in ministry with him, they departed from us because they weren't of us. Listen, the Christian faith is not about how you start. Look at me. The Christian faith is about how you finish. There's a lot of people that start. Listen, there's a lot of people that have walked through those front doors. There's a lot of people who've signed up. There's a lot of people who've started. But there's not a lot of people who finish. So, so what does spiritual maturity look like? If, if this is not how it's measured, then how do we measure it? Well, I think it looks like a number of things. Some marks of spiritual maturity. The first one is a growing trust in Jesus. And by the way, you can find all of these in chapter 1. When the Apostle Paul writes to the church and says, of the love, I've heard of the love that you have for Jesus. What does it look like to trust Jesus in your life? I think it looks a lot less like fighting for control and a lot more like surrender. I think that's what a growing trust in Jesus looks like. Because anxiety enters into your world when you're at the center of your world. When now the things that you're trying to hold and gather and control, the two things being torn and I think it looks like surrender. Um, it looks like a growing love for people. It looks like a growing love for people. The Apostle Paul says, I've heard of your love that you have for each other. And please, Westside, my, my, I can, my desire that I feel deep down in my bones, that I believe the greatest light that the church can be in such a hostile environment is how your love is for people who are different than you. Different than you. Not the same not a social club where I hang around everybody who agrees with me and we're just all robots and this is what it is and there's no challenges in my life or any of those relationships. But it's a growing love for people. The third thing is this, a growing knowledge of Jesus. That there's some things that we do have to know. That Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and then to love your neighbor as yourself and for some of us we need to dust off the dust on the cover of our bibles and dive into what god has for us but that knowledge leads to something it leads to a growing service to jesus this knowledge isn't something that we just store up and put on the shelf but this knowledge compels us to do something so here's just a quick application right here already from the beginning. Ask those closest to you today at some point. Spouses, ask each other, in which of these areas do you see um, growth in my life? In which of these areas do you see growth in my life? And then, and then here's the good one, right? And definitely ask your spouse this one, okay? Because they'll be glad to answer it for you. Um, in which of these areas do you not see growth in my life? Because listen to me, a stagnant Christian is an oxymoron. Now, there are seasons in our life where we feel like we're not growing, but the reality is, as Jesus would say, that he's pruning us and that there's a lot of things that are actually happening. We just can't, quote, see it. But the reality is, is that a stagnant Christian is an oxymoron. That, listen, your relationship with Jesus Christ is either growing or it is dying. There is no middle ground in that. 
So the goal is, is to present maturity, to strive and to work through God's word as to what this looks like. But the second question is this, why Colossians? I mean, out of 66 books, out of everything that is in the scriptures, why Colossians? And, and, and there's three reasons that the book tells us. The first one is this, to reclaim the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. I say this all the time. Listen, I am not the lead pastor of this church. The lead pastor of this church is Jesus Christ. I work for Jesus. We see this all through the New Testament, in Revelation and everything, that Jesus is the head of the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, the resurrection, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's it. That is a major theme. That is the top theme that the Apostle Paul has in this book. And what I love about the word of supremacy, it comes from the word supreme, uh, not that hip-hop Louis Vuitton logo brand, but the word supreme means this, highest in rank, position, and then here's the dirty word for 2021, ready? Or authority, as my kids would say, that's a bad word, right? I mean, I don't know of any other word that's more offensive in 2021 than the word authority. And listen, we have to get back to, we have to get back to this supremacy of Jesus this Jesus Christ that spoke the cosmos into existence, this Jesus Christ who at the grave of Lazarus said, Lazarus, come forth, and a dead man who was, had been dead for three days got up. This Jesus Christ who looked sin, death, and hell in the eyes, bore the cross, and rose from the grave. This Jesus Christ rules and reigns and is supreme today. And listen, I love what Augustine said. The first is the question is not, is Jesus important in your life? Listen, I, in Butler County and in Popper Bluff, if you talk about Jesus, like 99% of people are going to be like, oh yeah, Jesus. That's a Jesus, Jesus, love that guy. Jesus is my homeboy. Super important, right? That's not the question. The question is not, is Jesus important? The question is, is Jesus first? Do you see the difference? I think a lot of us think that this is what Christianity is, is that Jesus is important in my life among many other things. But the reality is, is the question is, is Jesus preeminent, supreme, first in rule, rank, and authority? Is Jesus first in my life? That every month when I sit down with my bank statement, is it, is Jesus first? That when I look at my calendar and I'm planning things with my kids and with my family and my kids have all these extracurricular activities, and all of this stuff. The question is, is Jesus first? Not, is he important? And I love what the early church father, Augustine, said. Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. And I think a lot of us have hit sort of a glass ceiling in our maturity and in our relationship with Jesus Christ because there are some things that we are holding at an equal playing field with Jesus and we're wrestling with balance, right? Balance, balance. And yes, balance is a good thing. But, but listen, I don't think, I don't think there's a perfect mystical balance out there somewhere. 
I think the question comes down to this. Is Jesus first? And then everything else flows from that. Everything flows from that. So why Colossians? To reclaim the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That when I enter into relationships, that God's word is my guide more than Tinder or Instagram is. That when I enter into my bank statement, that I'm asking myself, do I have a calculator and a cross in order to do my budgets? That is Jesus first in all of this. And please listen to me. I know there's a lot of fear, and I know there's a lot of doubt of going, Jason, if I surrender some of these things, I don't know what the result is going to be. And do you know what my answer is? Great. Great. Because that's an opportunity of obedience in faith. And listen, the clear view of Jesus that you will see on the other side of obedience will change your life. We've got to get back to the supremacy of this Jesus. And the second thing is this, to rest in the sufficiency of Jesus. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell I mean, we have no idea the massive statement that that is. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? The Apostle Paul is saying that what Jesus has revealed to us about God the Father is everything that we need to know who God is. That's very controversial, guys, in 2021. Where there was just recently a prayer that was prayed in one of our branches of government that said, Jesus and all other world religions. Please listen to me. I'm not saying this out of anger, but I'm saying this out of love and a deep conviction that Jesus Christ stands supreme and sufficient above all other religions and all other gods in all of the world. There have never been more songs sung, more books written, more paintings painted. Our time is divided between A.D. and Domini, the year of our Lord, and B.C. before Christ because of this God-man Jesus. Listen to me. Jesus Christ is enough. Jesus is enough. And we have got to get back in 2021 of the sufficiency of Jesus. That Christians would be bold, a loving boldness in their faith to say, I don't need anything else. I have Jesus Christ. And I love the definition of what sufficient means. Enough for a particular purpose. And then this, as much as you need. As much as you need. That's why Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That in him all things would be preeminent. And so listen, I think this is the greatest math equation that you could ever know in your life. That Jesus plus nothing equals everything, as one pastor would say. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I know that we wholeheartedly amen that and agree to that. But the reality is, I think that if we look at our life, we are tempted to put something else in that blank. Jesus plus comfort equals everything. Jesus plus my family 
equals everything. Jesus plus my finance, my political, what, whatever you think it is. Listen, the moment that we add something to Jesus Christ is the moment that we take away from the gospel. If you add any adjective to the gospel, please listen, look up here. It's not a Baptist gospel. It's not a, it's not a Reformed gospel. It's not an Arminian gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You put anything else in front of that and it ruins the gospel. That Jesus Christ is enough. That he is enough. And listen, the moment that you find out that Jesus is all you need is most of the time the moment is when Jesus is all you have. I've never heard a testimony of when it was like, well, you know, my life was going great. Had just bags of cash laying around. Everybody was healthy. My life was just going along with the plan that I had. And then one day I woke up and thought, you know what? I'm going to give my life to Christ today. I think I'll become a Christian. Never that. It was always, I was under deep conviction. The bottom fell out. This happened. And then I realized that Jesus was there, that Jesus was pursuing me. Listen, please always challenge yourself to fight filling that blank with anything else other than Jesus Christ. And then the last thing is this, to remember the simplicity of Jesus. I know what some of you are saying, the simplicity, Jason. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Listen, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is simple, but it's not easy. Let me say that again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simple, but it's not easy. And down with complicating the gospel... Down with complicating Jesus. Down with making things so. That's why Paul's writing this letter. Because people creep in and say, oh yeah, well, man, if you really want to experience something and you really want to feel the Lord in worship, then what you really need to do is you need to add this mysticism. And then you need, oh, this one book, it was on Oprah's uh, book club. Oh, you need to read this, man. This will really change. And, this, and the Apostle Paul's going, no. No, Oprah didn't have a book club back then. But no. That it's about the simplicity of the gospel. That there is a God and that our God created everything good, right, and perfect. That God is good despite what you see. And that our first parents, Adam and Eve, created in the image and likeness of God, chose to be and try to be God rather than worship God. And sin entered the world. And from that moment forward, everything's been broken. But God, in his riches and kindness and mercy towards us in Christ, sends us his only son. That Jesus is the only person to have a life before he was born. Jesus didn't start at Christmas. That Jesus existed eternally with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved and three days later rose again offering the keys to eternal life to anybody that would confess and bow the knee to their life and say it is not my life anymore but I surrender my life entirely to Jesus. Listen, that's the simplicity of the gospel. It's beautiful. It's beautiful and it's changed the world. But how sad it is that churches and Christians complicate it. And I grew up in a heritage where 
Yeah, sure, you got Jesus, but, but you better not have long hair. Let me tell you this. If you're a guy, you better, you better crop that off. So I just kind of sort of stuck with that. And so, um, and listen, you better not listen to this, and you better not go there and do that. And by God, you better not. Maybe some of you grew up with sort of a legalistic background as well. There was all these barriers in order to get to Jesus. And it was, well, this, and then this background, and then this. But the reality is, is that it's Jesus, just Jesus. I love what G.K. Chesterton said. He says that the gospel and the Christian life has been tried, but never found lacking. It's been tried and found difficult, therefore never tried again. Listen, nobody's ever tried this Jesus Christ and found something lacking. They've tried Jesus and realized that he was ruler and supreme and authority and that it was difficult, so therefore they never tried. But listen, if you have Jesus, you have all that you need. So, so, so the application is this. How am I making it hard for people in my life to see Jesus? I mean, even for us as a church together, is Westside making it hard for people to come to Jesus? Why, Colossians? To reclaim the authority and supremacy of Jesus Christ. To rest in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that he is enough. And then to know that God has given us this message that we can understand that there's a simplicity to this message, though it is not easy. Because listen, I believe a clear view of Jesus Christ can change your life. So as the band comes up, I want to do something today that is going to set the tone for the rest of us uh, for this entire series. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 19 is some of the highest verses in all of the New Testament. And what we know is, is that it was one of the first creeds that Christians had. When people said and asked early Christians, well, who is Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? They would quote this passage of scripture. And oftentimes we know from early church worship that they would sing it as a hymn and as a psalm together as well. So what I want us to do is, in closing, I want us to stand to our feet and I want us to read these verses together. I've substituted the he and him and put Jesus' name in there. And I want us to read this out loud together as to what we believe about Jesus Christ. So Westside, let us lift our voices as we begin this journey in the book of Colossians. Lift your voices. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. 
for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Jesus to reconcile to Jesus all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. It's all about Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come before you today grateful, God, that we would just get a glimpse and a clear view of you, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus who ate with tax collectors and sinners, the Jesus who performed miracles, the Jesus who raised people from the dead. Jesus, you are alive and well, and the same Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, I pray that marriages would get a clear view of you. God, I pray those battling depression or temptation or suffering or sickness, God, that they would get a clear view of you, Jesus. God, what we need in this coming year is Jesus, that you are enough. Challenge us, convict us, comfort us. God, have we bought into the lie that Jesus is important rather than is Jesus first? God, have we bought into the lie that we can be spiritually stagnant? Some of us in this room, God, have been coming to church, have been quote-unquote a part of the Christian life. If we're really honest with ourselves, there's no maturity there. Holy Spirit, grow us. God, may we never buy into the lie to make it difficult for people to come to you. That the gospel is enough. Holy Spirit, empower us on this journey, and may we see Jesus. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ.